the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today happens to be my mother's 92nd birthday. And we as a family are celebrating the 92 years of her life. She is... In my view and in the view of my family, she is beautiful, she is uh, cheerful, she is a leader in our family, she's an example, and her children, her grandchildren and her great-grandchildren rise up and call her blessed. She has a ministry of prayer, um, her limited mobility, primarily um, it's not a physical limitation as much as it is that she doesn't see as clearly or hear as well as she once did, Uh, so it limits her um, desire to be in places where she Uh, is a bit disoriented, but she has a ministry of prayer and she prays for individuals. She prays for her family and for people who um, may not know her personally, but whose story she's made aware of. And it's just such a blessing to know that she is um, my mom, that God has appointed her as the now the leader of our family since my father passed away. And it's just a blessing to have her with us. Today also marks the anniversary. I believe it's the 28th anniversary of our kidney transplant it was on December 13th, her birthday, that we at uh, up on the hill um, at OHSU um, exchange. Well, didn't exchange. I gave her my kidney and she has for the last 28 years not only survived that procedure, but she has thrived. She's um, done everything that she was asked to do. In fact, when you have a transplant, at least at that time, you literally had to sign what was something like a contract acknowledging that you recognize the seriousness of this and the. Uh, the gift that you've been given that you will do what is medically required for you to keep the kidney as long as possible. She signed that and took it very seriously. I remember that before we left to to come home, she had something like 50 plus pills that she had to take initially uh, to help prevent rejection. Uh, She had one episode early on where there was a slight um, indication of rejection and has not had any serious problems since then. So for the last 28 years, Uh, She's carried that kidney and done extremely well. We are so grateful to the Lord. I remember when she started on dialysis and seeing all that it took out of her. I was so grateful for dialysis because it meant that her the machine could do what her kidney at that point could not. And I remember praying at that time and saying, Lord, would you let me be a match for my mother? My sister was the had two small children. My brother, he had small children. Uh, Dan and I had no children. It just seemed logical. I'm the eldest. And uh, it seemed logical to me that I should be the one to to donate the kidney. And the Lord honored that prayer. We went in uh, to, or I went in to be tested and it was determined that I was a good match for her. And the long process of making sure that not only was the kidney a good match, but that I was fit for the procedure and all of that. And throughout, I was asked the question, you know, at any point, if you decide you would rather not do this, um, you know, you're you're welcome. You're free to do that and never had any question or doubt that this was precisely where I needed to be and what I needed to do. I remember even 
um, at the time of the the procedure, they said, you know, you're free to have a separate room. And if you'd like to just be on your own, just, you know, trying to be as accommodating as possible. We opted and I strongly wanted to share a room with my mother. So I remember when I was wheeled out first, I remember um, her being wheeled back into the room because you have to do that first procedure and then um, hers begins somewhere in the middle of mine. And then there's the exchange and she later comes into the room. I remember how much fun it was, as painful and difficult as it was, how much fun it was for she and I to be in the same room together and just to share that part of the experience before and after. In fact, it, it was brought to the attention, I believe, of the uh, one of the television stations in the area that uh, they wanted a human interest story. And so they learned that uh, December 13th was my mother's birthday, that she was re- receiving a kidney from her daughter. And I remember being interviewed, the two of us, before the procedure began and it was just an opportunity to share our testimony and uh, how good the Lord is. And um, that was uh, on the television prior to the surgery. Uh, but beyond that, um, my mom, for the last 28 years, has done extremely well. Uh, for the first 25 years, uh, every every uh, December 13th, my mother would send a large bouquet of roses until I finally convinced her she no longer needed to do that. But just to say thank you. She's been so grateful and gracious. And I I always have to remind her that, um, and people ask me, oh, you gave your kidney to your mother? Why? And I said, well, you have to know my mother. Uh, you have to realize the sacrifice she and my father made to raise her children. She made us her priority. And there's so many things she could have done with her life, but she chose to focus her time and attention to invest her life into her children. And I am so grateful for that. Um, when you become a, a young adult and you um, enter into public life and you recognize how few of your peers have had that kind of love and uh, and teaching, uh, you really begin to appreciate parents who take seriously their role of parenting and raising children to become young adults and responsible uh, citizens. And I'm so grateful to my mother. She has lived with Dan Rice and me for over 20 years now. And uh, she has her own apartment. We've made a plan for transitioning. If she can no longer manage in that apartment where she's going to move to an upstairs location where she's uh, closer to some things that will make life easier for her. But our prayer has been that until the Lord calls her home, I've asked him to allow her to stay with us in our home and to uh, have the privilege of walking her home. Because I know that my mom, when he calls her, will wake up one day in his presence. And I am so grateful for that. I, I remember when my grandmother became very ill and she was sick unto death. And I prayed and I asked the Lord, could you allow me to be there when my grandmother came home? I was a grandma's girl. She was just to me so special. And I asked the Lord, would you allow me to be there when you call her home? And so I was working at the time and I got a call from the hospital. I went there immediately. I was able to sing with her and pray with her. She was not conscious, but um, to be there when she took her last breath. And so I've asked the Lord for the privilege of being there when my mother is called home into his presence, which makes it a peaceful uh, event. Um, But all of that to say that my mom today is 92 years old. And when I go home, we're going to have a little celebration and finish her Christmas decorations. And I'm just so grateful, not only that she has 92 years, but that she is my mother, that I've had the joy of being raised by her and now uh, the privilege of serving her in her old age and Lord willing, the, uh, the privilege of seeing her to her final destination. So happy birthday, mama. I love you with all my heart. And so do your children, your grandchildren, 
and your great-grandchildren. All right. There's no crying in radio, so we're going to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we come back, we'll take a look at some of the headline news. Also, a conversation with David Mathis. He is a pastor and a seminary teacher. His book is titled Workers for Your Joy, The Call of Christ on Christian Leaders. That's coming up in the second half of this first hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, a conversation with David Mathis. He is the author of Workers for Your Joy, The Call of Christian, uh, The Call of Christ, rather, on Christian Leaders. The book is published by Crossway. He'll join us in our next segment. Well, New York Republican congressman has weighed in on the push from some GOP members to impeach the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas while chaos and crime continue at the border. Well, 20 Republicans on Tuesday demanded that the House move to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary in the next Congress. Another sign that border issues will play a major part of the Republican oversight agenda next year. The lawmakers, led by GOP Representative Andy Biggs of Arizona, accused Mayorkas of not taking seriously the migrant crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border. Big said that Secretary Mayorkas has released more than a million illegal aliens into the country. Most of these released uh, will never be heard from again. Representative Lauren Boebert out of Colorado accused Mayorkas of misleading Congress by testifying under oath that the U.S. southern border was operationally under control. He regularly lies to the American people, claiming that the southern border is closed. Boebert said, I've been there. It's wide open. Well, despite these renewed calls to remove him, the effort to impeach him faces long odds. Well, saying anything you like or refraining from saying whatever you want is one of the most fundamental rights of a free nation. Without it, the First Amendment is worthless. Well, the Supreme Court just heard arguments in 303 Creative LLC versus Elenis. The case of Lori Smith, a Colorado graphic designer who refuses to create websites with messages that conflict with her faith, among them gay wedding announcements and celebrations. Well, the case not only gives the Supreme Court the opportunity to strengthen the right to free expression, but to fix its useless decision in Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission that empowered the government to level debilitating fines against Christian businesses just as long as bureaucrats didn't openly convey any animus toward their victims. Well, David Cole, National Legal Director of the American Civil Liberties Union, which has come a long way since um, defending the Nazis of of Spocky on neutral principle grounds, wrote an op-ed published on Monday in the New York Times. It's headlined before being edited post-publication. The First Amendment is not a license to discriminate, end quote. Well, because otherwise, interior decorators, landscape architects, tattoo parlors, sign painters and beauty salons, among countless other businesses whose services contain some expressive element, would all be free to hang out signs refusing to serve Muslims, women, dis- the disabled, African-Americans or any other group, they went on to say. Well, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, during Monday's argument, similarly claimed that 303 Creative case would be the first time in the Supreme Court's history that the court would allow a business to refuse to serve a customer based on race, sex, religion, or sexual orientation. Well, this uh, is the lie at the heart of the debate, but this is the debate that it has been enjoined. First off, uh, if they insist on framing the speech debate as a binary choice between compulsion and discrimination, then yes, free expression, expression explicitly laid out in the Constitution should trump the right of a stranger to walk into a store and demand the owner say something he does not believe. Using Sotomayor's identitarian calculus, a shopkeeper 
uh, never would be able to refuse the demand of any customer who happened to be gay. But neither Lori Smith nor Masterpiece Cake Shop owner Jack Phillips turned away any customer because of an immutable characteristic or sexual preference or religious belief. Rather, they refused to create a message that conflicted with their sincere convictions. If a straight cousin of a groom asked for a same-sex wedding site, Smith would have turned the person away as well. If a gay customer wanted a website for his business, Smith would have created it. If a straight couple asked for a body website or a website that declared Zenu the one true Lord of the universe, they would uh, that too would have been rejected because the uh, that idea also runs afoul of her evangelical Christian beliefs. It's a shame that Cole and Sotomayor pretend not to comprehend the distinction. Progressives like to act as if Christians or Islamic or Jewish opposition to same-sex marriage is some newfangled ruse cooked up by activists to allow them to put no gays allowed signs in their shop windows. I assure you that is the notion that true marriage is exclusively between one genetic man and one genetic woman is a generational notion. Before his evolution on the question, Democrat icon Barack Obama had tethered his opposition to gay marriage to theology. Whether you agree with this stance or not is entirely irrelevant when it comes to the matter of speech. There is no hurt feeling clause in the Constitution. Rather than dealing with the question, Cole, who was a difficult time seeing anything in non-racial terms, lists a slew of scary, slippery slope hypotheticals. Among them, should an architecture firm that believes black families don't deserve fancy homes be permitted to turn away black clients because the work is expressive. Here is a better question. Would Cole, who says the ACLU has been this nation's leading defender of free speech for more than a century, call for the state to intervene in the case of an evangelical customer who wants to compel a gay designer to create a website for an organization that works to overturn same-sex marriage laws or preaches that acts of homosexuality are a moral sin? Christians, after all, are also protected groups under the anti-discrimination laws. The answer is highly unlikely. If we want a diverse and open society, and I'm highly skeptical, that's the goal of the Cole or Sotomayor arguments, one side of the cultural divide can be empowered to crush the economic lives of another who dissents. Thousands of businesses will bake the cakes or create the websites. Public accommodation laws were meant to stop discrimination against minorities, not compel minorities to promote that the political and theological positions of the majority, uh, the majority. And that argument is continuing in the U.S. Supreme Court as they will decide in the case of this creative designer and whether or not a message can be rejected by the one who would uh, be responsible for creating it. Well, over the weekend, a massive caravan of thousands of uh, illegal migrants, uh, mostly from Nicaragua, crossed the border into two western into West Texas in a stunning surge that shocked immigration agents, neighboring towns, and state officials. By Monday, over 5,000 migrants had arrived at the Border Patrol's Central Processing Center in El Paso. Officials uh, of the New York Times report they, est- they estimated that about 2,000 people came to the U.S. each day, with the largest influx reaching 800 to 1,000 migrants on Sunday night. State Senator Cesar Blanco, who represents the region, argued that the situation is untenable with El Paso's community with limited capacity being forced to accommodate scores of migrants regularly. We're feeling it. It's straining our resources, he told the publication, noting that El Paso has functional um, has functioned rather as an Ellis Island for, for illegal immigrants. Whether we want it or not, it is. El Paso's predicament, which included 53,000 apprehensions in October alone, is the worst among U.S.-Mexico border towns, although um, are um, all bearing the brunt 
of the uh, raging border crisis. So far in 2022, there have been 2,378,944 migrant encounters along the southern border, according to immigration data. Homeless shelters in El Paso are flooded, as is the processing center, which typically releases the migrants into the interior with instructions to return for future court dates, which, of course, many do not oblige. Blake Barrow, of the, uh, who is rather the director of Rescue Mission El Paso, told The Times that his shelter was uh, bursting at the seams and was mostly filled with migrants rather than U.S. citizens. The numbers are like nothing I've seen in the last 25 years, he said. Honestly, I don't know how to address this problem. The situation is overwhelming. Um, Rosalio Sosa, who runs a network of shelters in the area, told the outlet that her facilities are struggling to keep up with a constant inflow of migrants. The queue right now is endless, he said. Uh, An anonymous administration official implied the federal government is still attempting to tackle the root causes of illegal immigration in economically ravaged and politically tumultuous countries in Central America that are sparking the migrant upheaval. The administration has not come up with a plan to fix the border catastrophe, however. The inundation of migrants at the border this week comes as Title 42, a public health order first used by former President Donald Trump during the pandemic, to expel illegal migrants to is set to expire on the 21st of this month in accordance with a federal judge's ruling. The Department of Homeland Security anticipates that between 9,000 and 14,000 migrants will arrive on the southern border daily without Title 42 in place. With Title 42 illegal crossings still ranging from 6,000 to 7,000 daily. A federal judge last month blocked the rule, claiming the CDC's use of it was arbitrary and capricious under the Administrative Procedures Act. In December, it was reported that President Biden and senior Democratic aides were considering a strategy resembling a Trump-era transit ban that would bar asylum seekers who choose not to apply for asylum in another country uh, they travel through to reach the U.S. And the president has still declined to visit the border, which many suggest is much worse than images that we see on our television screens. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, a conversation with David Mathis. His book, Workers for Your Joy, The Call of Christ on Christian Leaders. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, confidence in Christian leaders has waned in recent years, leaving it in its wake an increased hesitancy for some to submit to church authority was sparked in part by regular reports and even serial podcasts about abuses of power. There's a growing cynicism around leadership. But how might our view of leaders improve if everyone, from pastors to their congregations, experienced eldership the way God designed it? Well, in Workers for Your Joy, The Call of Christ on Christian Leaders, my next guest, pastor and seminary professor David Mathis, shares a singular, coherent vision of the calling and work of Christian leaders— through the lens of the pastoral qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. He emphasizes that these virtues are not only prerequisites, but daily necessities for Christian leaders to do the work to which God has called them. One of the ways that Christ governs his church and blesses her is by giving her the gift of leaders. And the book aims to paint a vision, not just in broad brushstrokes, but with the fine lines the New Testament gives us, he writes. Within scripture, he says, is a beautiful and countercultural view 
of Leadership. Well, my guest, David Mathis, serves as Senior Teacher and Executive Director at DesiringGod.org, a pastor at Cities Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, and as Adjunct Professor at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis. He and his wife have four children, and he's offered several books, including Habits of Grace, Enjoying Jesus Through the Spiritual Disciplines. And we're delighted to have him with us here today. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Georgine. It's an honor to be talking with you. Well, let's uh, let's talk about what motivated you to write the book. I mentioned that confidence in Christian leaders has waned, but what motivated you to write this book, not just to kind of uh, as a pep talk, but to give us a clear understanding of what Scripture says? <laughs> well, Georgine, actually, this is this book's a little strange in that regard. Is that I've been working on it for ten years. <laughs> uh, back in in 2012, I got the assignment at Bethlehem College and Seminary uh, to do the eldership class, and we had a, a textbook for that class, and I would supplement that textbook with some different thoughts. And then as the years went on, we tried to iterate the class, really meet where the meet the needs of the guys where they were at. And I, I started to think of what issues do future pastors need to be trained in so that they're ready for the ministry, they're, they're mature for the ministry, that they haven't just done book learning, but we talked through some of the real practical issues, the conflicts they'll come across in pastoral ministry. And as, as I began to, to identify some of those, those needs for training, it was remarkable to discover that every one of those needs paired with one of the elder qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 in Titus 1, it, it, it's almost as if the Apostle Paul knew what he was talking about <laughs> 2,000 years ago. It is, <laughs> it is, it is an, ama- an amazing thing, this timeless list inspired by the risen Christ through the Apostle Paul, largely the same lists in First Timothy 3 and in Titus 15. These are timeless virtues of Christian leaders and Christians in general from the first century down through today. And so it was timeless 10 years ago. And now, 10 years later, when we've been through the ups and downs, the controversies and conflicts related to COVID and various rise and fall stories, it's as relevant as it ever was. And so this is not a response to the last couple of years. It's not a response to expose podcasts. Uh, it's, it's very much what has felt like the need for training future pastors over the course of the last decade. Now, it seems that this late in the game, the year 2022, that we would pretty much, as the church, have this down. Um, why is it that we need to be reminded of what the original instruction was that can help us avoid so many of the challenges and difficulties that leaders face today? Oh, my, Georgie, that is such a good question. Uh, I, I wish I knew the answer. I, I can try to give you some possible hypotheses. But, you know, with, with each new generation— uh, we're only one generation away from barbarianism, right? I mean, we, we, we need to teach the next generation. And, and with every new generation, there's different temptations. There's different things that are accented and emphasized. Perhaps you have the business leader model, and you think about CEOs and what's, what's helpful in the business world and, and leaders being executive types until a movement comes along where we think about pastors being executives and training pastors as if they're executives. And it's very easy to to miss the balance or have some things get askew uh, over time. And that, that, that's a remarkable thing about what the, the the timeless virtues that we have in the New Testament, and that even Paul would serve them up so clearly as requisite on local church leaders. In, in every church, in every generation, there are various aspects of this list where we're weaker in or stronger in, and it will oscillate from one generation to the next. 
And so we all do well to go through verses here that we're prone to read quickly, breeze over, not pause to linger over, and to, to study these virtues, study what kind of grace God means to do in the lives of his leaders to make them balanced, healthy for the teamwork of pastoral ministry in local churches. In the introduction, you reflect on 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and you consider some glimpses that Peter gives of the leadership or teaching office in the church, uh, that of a pastor or elder. Can you just review generally um, what those are and how, um, how we should view them as we consider what is a, a biblical uh, view of leadership in the church, pastor or elder? That's really good. I, I think apart from First Timothy 3, Titus 1, one of the best passages in the New Testament about leadership from a Christian perspective, it's First Peter 5, 1 to 5. Uh, one of the things to notice there is that right out of the gate, Peter addresses them as a team, as plural. I exhort the elders, plural, among you. And this is, this is an easy thing to overlook in our context. I mean, there, there were other days in church history where the reality of teamwork in pastoral ministry was very pronounced and even assumed. But I, whether it's the westward expansion in the United States, whether it's the leadership culture of previous generations, we often think of the pastor, <laughs> the, the leader that has his little kingdom of the church. And there, there may be places where that is all they have, a single pastor, and he's doing his best, and it's difficult labor. But there are other places where we've made the decision to highlight a certain leader, always have a certain man in the pulpit, for not to be a team leadership situation, which is uniformly the case in the New Testament. Every time the New Testament talks about local church pastor leaders, it's always plural. It's always a team. So that's one, that they're, they're a team. Also, they're the kind of pastors who are attentive and engaged. They're not trying to shepherd the flock in all the world through the internet or over video. They're engaged in a particular local church context. So Peter talks about the pastor elders being among the people and the people being among them. Another dynamic is leaders are the ones who lean into hardship. You know, Jesus talked about hired hands in John chapter 7 who run when the wolves come. But, but real faithful church leaders are those that lean into conflict. They're their most involved, most engaged when there's trouble. They don't run from the trouble. Now, they don't bull rush the trouble and scare people either. They move patiently toward conflict and seek to provide humble, honest, faithful leadership in the midst of difficult times, like many of us have been through in recent years and maybe going through now. And maybe one final one to, to, to accent is the importance of joy. Uh, Peter talks to men who have been called to do this. They feel a kind of internal desire to do it. They aspire to the ministry, as Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 3. That's been confirmed in the context of community. There's a particular appointment to the church, and he means for pastors to do their work with joy, not under compulsion, he says, but willingly, as God would have you. So our God is the kind of God who doesn't act under compulsion. He is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases as sovereign of the nation. And he means for his pastors to also be the kind of leaders who want to do the work. They aspire to it. They do it with joy, and they pursue the good, the long-term good, the ultimate joy of their flock, and it gives them great honor and enjoyment to get to do that work. 
We're talking about the book Workers for Your Joy, The Call of Christ on Christian Leaders with uh, David Mathis. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation in just a few moments. So do stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, talking with author David Mathis, his book, Workers for Your Joy, The Call of Christ on Christian Leaders. Now, before we um, delve further into the book, let's talk a little bit about the title of the book, Workers for Your Joy, because that may not be altogether clear if you haven't read the book and what the scripture says about that subject, Workers for Your Joy, referring to pastors and elders. That's right. Uh, great question. The, the title, Workers from Your Joy, I mean, there's several places in the New Testament that talk about the importance of the relationship between the pursuit of joy in a holy sense and the leader. But in particular, the place it comes from, for me, is the end of Second Corinthians chapter 1. Paul's in this very interesting relationship with the Corinthians, defending his apostleship, and he's talking about how his leadership among them, he says, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Second Corinthians one twenty four. So Paul's understanding of his ministry is that he doesn't domineer his people. He doesn't coerce them. He doesn't force them. He works with them for their joy. So he has their joy as defined by the risen Christ, not on their terms. He's not giving in to the whims of the people in, in, the, in Corinth. He's, he's defining joy on the terms that Christ would define it, eternal, deep, joy in Jesus. And he's saying, what we do as apostles is labor for your joy. So if the apostle Paul, as an inspired apostle, a writer of the New Testament who met the risen Christ on the Damascus Road, if the apostle Paul, if his own conception of his ministry would be that he works for the joy of Christians, how much more so leaders in the local church? that we'd be called not to lord it over. That's the same language Jesus uses in Mark 10, where he says that the Gentiles lord it over them. It shall not be so among you, he says to his disciples. You, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the way that Paul does that with the Corinthians, and that pastors do that in their local churches to say, I don't lord it over you. I don't command you. I don't tell you what to do. I labor, and that labor is often teaching, patient, hard work of teaching. I labor to work for your joy in Jesus Christ. Mm. Well, the book is divided into three sections, and you write at the conclusion of the introduction, the God of all grace has appointed that a plurality of mature Christian men who know and love and are able to effectively communicate his word and his gospel lead and feed his flock in the life of the local church. The God who has spoken, particularly in the scriptures and his incarnate word, created and sustains the church, a creature of his word, through the teaching and guidance of its leaders. So who are these men? In part one, you uh, turn our attention to the humbled men before God who want uh, uh, before their God what we might call the God word or devotional life. Uh, So you look at the at the humbled. Can you explain a little bit of that section of the book? Yes. So I, one thing I tried to labor with and trying to think through how to structure the book, how to make it memorable, how to, how to break it into pieces so it's easier for Christians. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes that list of 15 qualifications goes by us so quickly. Like, wait, what was said? There, there's, there's so many in the list that we miss it. So I was trying to think, how do we think about maybe three categories of these 15 plus qualifications for leaders? 
And so there is a cluster of elder qualifications that have to do with the relationship of the pastor leader to God himself. And so in that section, I talk about the calling to the ministry, what it, how, how Christ calls pastors into the ministry. There's a qualification of not being arrogant. That is utterly vital. And that's, that's a very coordinate expression with being humble, being humble, not arrogant. There is no room for arrogance in pastoral ministry. Often, also in that section of being humble, I talk about how pastors are teachers. This is a uniform teaching across the New Testament that the pastors are those who teach the Word of God, teach the apostolic Word, teach the Scriptures in the church. And so pastors are, are meant to be teachers, not mainly administrators of large departments primarily, but they're to be those who know the Bible well, love the Scriptures, and love to teach people the truth of Christ through the Scriptures. So pastors are teachers. And they're not teachers that teach themselves or are innovative, but they're stewards of God's Word, which means they're humble. They're humble in their teaching. And then the last sec- thing, last trait to deal with in that first section is what's called sober-mindedness, which is such an important term. Mm-hmm. If the pastors are going to be those who not only decide on the teaching and do the teaching, but, but lead the congregation, they need to have a kind of sanctified wisdom. They need to have Christian common sense. They need to be sober-minded, to have their their brains, their wisdom so shaped by God's Word and by the Holy Spirit that together they lead the church in a sober-minded way, meaning they keep their heads. We've lived in crazy times in some respects in recent years, and we've seen a lot of people lose their heads in various ways. Not literally, as in the French Revolution, but lose their heads and losing their cool, losing their wisdom, losing their ability to navigate life in a calm and organized way. And that's critical in the pastor leaders of the church, that they be the kind of humbled men who are sober-minded in their decisions. You, in the next section, you deal with um, uh, men in their own homes and private life among those who know them best, uh, that they would, uh, you look at wholeness within the leader. That's right. You know, wholeness is another way of talking about integrity. Uh, it, it's often talked about in, in, in good pastoral circles and seminary circles how, how much these qualifications are related to character. And that is true. The, the heart of these qualifications do relate to character, especially if you put that up against gifting, you know, world-class oratory or executive skills or world-class intellect. The, the qualifications here are very much related to character. So self-control, faithfulness in his marriage. It's literally a one-woman man. It relates to how the pastor deals with alcohol and other substances, how he deals with his own money, and then in particular, what he's like as a father. Uh, is he a distracted dad? Is he an engaged dad? Is he a dad who is making some legitimate headway at home such that he would be trusted to be part of the team that, that leads a church? And so that uh, the organization and leadership of one's own household is a testing ground and a, and a way of developing those who would lead in God's household, that's the church. You conclude with um, honorable men before the watching eyes of the church and in the world, exemplary in public life. Yeah, this isn't surprising to most people because these qualifications are very public. And sometimes mm-hmm. they think, oh, you know, if, if the qualifications are about character, you know, self-control, and amen, they are. But uh, pastor and elder and overseer, that's an office in the local church. It's official. It's public. It's irreducibly public. And so how the leader presents himself in public is very important. So there's the qualification of being above reproach. 
that there shouldn't be any obvious information or any obvious criticism that's part of the, that leader's public reputation. Or there's this qualification of respectable. Our pastors should be the kind of people who make respect easier for the church, not harder. They shouldn't make a pattern of making the church's respect more difficult. Elsewhere, Paul talks about how the church should respect her leaders, and the leaders should do their part to make that respect easier for the church, not harder. Another aspect here is hospitality, which is literally love for strangers. So that relates to inviting people into your home, but also the kind of orientation where uh, pastors would welcome those into the church. They want to meet those in the church, welcome those in the church. They're the kind of people who want to extend the gospel in evangelism, in the Great Commission, in kind of being a hospitable and warm and generous church. And then they're, they're known for their gentleness, which is not a gentleness that is weakness, mm-hmm. but it's a gentleness that's a virtue in addition to strength. Biblically, weakness is not the same as gentleness. (laughs) Gentleness is added strength to strength. Those who know how to cushion the application of their strength so that it is life-giving rather than life-harming. The last couple here in the section on honorable is that these pastors are not quarrelsome. They don't pick fights. They're not combative. They don't go from one fight to the next. They're willing to take a stand for God's truth to represent Christ well. But they don't move from one fight to the next, always looking for a fight. They're not quarrelsome. And then the last one, which may be the most surprising, is that what outsiders think. They're well thought of by outsiders, which doesn't mean that the world gets to decide who leads the church. But if leaders in the church have a poor reputation among outsiders, we should ask very carefully, why? Is it because of their own sin? Is it because of a gracious stand they've taken for truth, or is it because of folly, which is just as foolish on the world's terms as it is on Christ's terms? And, and Paul includes that last elder qualification because of the nature of public office that we want pastors who are honorable mm-hmm. in the church and outside the church. Yeah. Well, I wish we had more time because the book covers so much more and it's worth reading, not only if you're considering the pastorate, but also for churches to better understand what is it that God is calling these leaders to and what we should look for. Again, the book is called Workers for Your Joy, The Call of Christ on Christian Leaders. David Mathis, thank you so much for the book and for talking with us today. Thank you, Georgine. It was an honor and joy to talk to you. Appreciate it. News and traffic up next. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good evening and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. We'll continue to look at some of the day's headlines. Well, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis announced on Tuesday his intention to uh, impanel a grand jury to investigate any and all wrongdoing involving COVID-19 vaccines in his state. DeSantis is a potential Republican presidential candidate. He made the announcement during a, a roundtable discussion about vaccine accountability that he held with Florida Surgeon General Dr. Joseph Ledapo. He's previously expressed concern about the safety of COVID mRNA vaccines and boosters. The roundtable was attended by medical and health specialists who raised similar concerns about the safety of the vaccines. 
Most health officials agree that the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are safe and effective at preventing serious illness or death from COVID-19, but many have also been silenced. So we don't have a real perspective on what those numbers might be. DeSantis said he intends to petition the Supreme Court of Florida to impanel a grand jury, likely in the Tampa Bay area. He didn't specify what wrongdoing the grand jury would investigate, but he said the grand jury would come with legal processes to obtain information from vaccine manufacturers and those who committed misconduct. Well, the Royal Bahamas Police Force took the failed financial tech entrepreneur into custody after the U.S. filed criminal charges against him. Sam Bankman-Fried, head of the cryptocurrency exchange company that collapsed last month, was reportedly arrested on Monday in the Bahamas at the request of the U.S. government. FTX um, uh, imploded in November, costing investors millions of dollars in losses. The fallen businessman has been accused of misusing customer funds deposited with FTX to artificially prop up another one of his um, enterprises, a crypto hedge fund, uh, Alameda Research, which he operated simultaneously while seemingly evading financial ethics scrutiny. As a result of the notification received and the material provided therewith, it was deemed appropriate for the attorney general to seek SBF's arrest and hold him in custody pursuant to our nation's extradition act, the statement read. At such time as a formal request for extradition is made, the Bahamas intends to process it promptly pursuant to Bahamian law and its treaty obligations with the United States. Damian Williams, the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, updated in a tweet that on Tuesday, the office will likely move to unseal the indictment it it, uh, filed against Bankman-Fried, which did in fact happen. And while the U.S. pursues prosecution against Bankman-Fried, the Bahamas will also simultaneously investigate the crash of FTX on both the regulatory and criminal fronts, the prime minister of the country said. Now, there's... uh, There are questions being raised about the curious timing of Sam Bankman-Fried's arrest. Why did federal prosecutors make their move hours before Bankman-Fried was scheduled to give potentially incriminating testimony to Congress? Um, Andrew McCarthy asks, says, rather, I'm not perplexed by the fact of it, as Rich Lowry and I discussed in recent episodes in the McCarthy Report. When billions of dollars in investor funds go poof, the Justice Department routinely files charges. So it would be surprising if there were not an indictment of SBF's case. Moreover, the Biden administration's progressive regulatory enthusiasts, very much including those of Gary Gensler's Securities and Exchange Commission, have been spoiling for an opportunity to end crypto freewheeling. Wild West era. Although, to my mind, FTX runs against the grain of what cryptocurrencies aim to achieve, its implosion is the perfect pretext for a regulatory push. No, instead, what puzzles me is the timing. And that's the question that's being raised. The now notorious SBF was slated to testify on Tuesday at a hearing of the House Financial Services Committee with fireworks anticipated to result. It's highly unusual for a suspect fraudster um, who knows he is under investigation to make public statements explaining himself, especially when his uh, very prominent lawyer parents are presumably pleading with him to exercise his constitutional right not to help prosecutors build a case against him. Well, good defense lawyers advise um, 
Even clients they believe are innocent to remain silent, at least until charges are filed and discovery begins. Well, having access to the charges and the Justice Department's prosecutorial theory, along with information about what the witnesses and documents say, enables defense counsel to gauge the strength of the government's case and potentially trade testimony for leniency. Well, consequently, if you were a prosecutor from the Southern District of New York, the U.S. Attorney's Office that has filed the charges against SBF, you would be delighted that your defendant has been ignoring sound advice and making public statements for weeks. In fact, it was just, what, a week ago he was on a stage in which he was fawned over even as he admitted that he, well, pretty much messed up and didn't have sufficient oversight. You would have uh, been salivating at the prospect of his being grilled under oath for hours by grandstanding um, commis, uh, Congress goers. Well, so why on the eve of the House hearing would the S, uh, the, the New York uh, district attorney's office suddenly mobilized to arrest SBF, knowing this would inevitably abort his testimony. Plainly, there was no great rush to apprehend him. Uh, he has remained at the liberty and uh, at liberty rather and talking very publicly in the month since the FTX collapse. Plus, if he were testifying before Congress, even by remote transmission, his whereabouts would be known, providing prosecutors an assurance that he was not poised to flee the country from which it would be hard to extradite him. Why wouldn't the Justice Department wait a day or two, then give the um, uh, New York prosecutors the benefit of wide-ranging testimony that could be used against him, both in the criminal proceedings and in the SEC's civil lawsuit, which, like the indictment, was made public Tuesday morning? Well, one obvious possibility for the cynical among us is that the... uh, uh, those who run the House committee, which is led by the firebrand lefty Maxine Waters of California, were loath to abide Republican haranguers about SBF's prodigious political contributions, whose regulatory enthusiasm he echoed, making him the bane of his crypto competitors' existence. Uh, perhaps that was the motive for silencing him by arresting him just before Congress was to uh, to speak. Well, it's an open Question, the answer to which I don't suppose we'll know, but nonetheless, the process, the procedure has begun, and uh, we'll see what happens next. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice. <laughs> Thank you for saving me, Sam. <laughs> I was packing my stuff up. I was ready to go. All right. Well, Loudoun County Public Schools former superintendent Scott Zeigler uh, and public information officer Wade Byard, uh, they were indicted by a special grand jury with the uh, eight month investigation into the district's mishandling of two sexual assault cases. Well, the Loudoun County judge unsealed the indictments yesterday. Uh, Ziegler is charged with one count of false public uh, publication, one count of pro- uh, prohibited conduct and one count of penalizing an employee for a court appearance. And the special grand jury issued an indictment against the former superintendent on the 14th of June and September 28th for offenses that allegedly happened on the 7th of June and the 22nd of um, June. Well, Byard was charged with a uh, uh, by the court with a felony perjury. The indictment against Byard has uh, issued was issued in September. Well, the unsealing comes after the Loudoun County School Board fired him in a closed door meeting last week following the release of a special grand jury report. 
And you might remember the case. A male high school student allegedly sexually assaulted two female students in the district between May and October. The gender fluid male student uh, who was wearing a skirt at the time and given access to female only areas allegedly sodomized a nine year old girl in the girl's bathroom at Stonebridge High School. The perpetrator was transferred to another school in the same district. Uh, to a high school where he allegedly assaulted another female student. He allegedly abducted the girl from a hallway and forced um, her into an empty classroom where he nearly suffocated and uh, assaulted her, according to the grand jury. Well, the 15-year-old boy was uh, convicted of both assaults and sentenced to complete a residential program in a lockdown facility. You might recall that the um, father of the latter victim was thrown out of a school board meeting when he vehemently opposed how the situation had been handled. And if the first assault had been addressed properly, his daughter, who was the victim in the second, uh, would have been spared. Well, in April, Virginia Attorney General Jason Mayaris, he called for the special grand jury review of the district's handling of the assault. And um, they uh, finally did the right thing, although after a very, very long time. There were several decision points for senior LCPS administrators up the up to and including the superintendent to be transparent and step in and alter the sequence of events leading up to the October uh, 2021 sexual assault. The grand jury report reads they failed at every juncture. Well, the grand jury found the second assault could have and should have been uh, prevented. The victim's father spoke out against the policy at a school board meeting where he was told there was no record of an assault occurring in the bathroom. The father was forcibly escorted out of the meeting by police. He has since been and now been vindicated. Well, a federal court on Friday blocked a Biden administration mandate that would force religious hospitals and doctors to facilitate gender transitions against their sincerely held moral convictions. The Eighth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals affirmed a lower court's decision to block enforcement of the rule on the grounds that intrusion upon the Catholic plaintiff's exercise of religion is sufficient to show irreparable harm, the file read. Catholic nuns, clinics, a university, and hospitals were among the plaintiffs in the case represented by the Beckett Fund. The plaintiffs all provide medical care for transgender patients but refuse to provide gender transition surgeries because they believe them to be harmful. Their grant of permanent injunctive relief from the lower court has um, was preserved on Friday. The ruling, which originated in North Dakota, is one of a twin set of cases challenging the Biden administration's mandate. The second, which originated in Texas, was decided in August by the Fifth Circuit Court, which also permanently blocked the rule. The plaintiffs in the Texas case included Christian medical associations of thousands of doctors who are now protected from federal encroachment into their practices. Senator Kirsten Sinema, formerly one of the two Democratic swing voters in the chamber, announced Friday that she's leaving the party to register as an independent. Everyday Americans are increasingly left behind by National Party's rigid partisanship, which has hardened in recent years, presumes in both parties pull um, uh, pressures rather pull in both parties, pull leaders to the edges, allowing the loudest, most extreme voices to determine their respective parties priorities and expecting the rest of us to fall in line. The moderate wrote in an op ed. 
for the Arizona Republic. Cinema released a video further explaining her decision to split with the Democrats and declare herself an independent. Since she first entered the Senate, Cinema claimed she's functioned as an independent, willing to work across the aisle with either side of the political spe- uh, spectrum. Becoming an independent won't change my work in the Senate. My service to Arizona remains the same. The senator said she will not caucus with the Republicans in an interview with Politico, but did say... Uh, did not say whether she would caucus with the Democrats. She intends to maintain her committee assignments from the Democratic majority, a cinema spokesperson told the Washington Post. Her defection comes after the Democrats gained 51 Senate seats following incumbent candidate Raphael Warnick's a victory against Herschel Walker in the Georgia runoff race. With cinema's departure, her colleague Joe Manchin will be left the sole centrist Democrat in the Senate. The White House issued a statement suggesting it's not expecting the balance of power to shift in the Senate with Sinema's move. She will very likely vote most often with the Democrats, with a few exceptions, as has been her case as a Democrat. Well, short end of the stick, Congress reacted to WNBA star Brittany Griner's release, thrilled that she's home, but at what cost? Social surveillance, Democrats want government to watch for potential mass shooters online. In a possible GOP revolt, seven more House Republicans threaten McCarthy's opposition if concessions are not made. He wants to be the Speaker of the House. Calling it a new Cold War, a GOP lawmaker sounded the alarm on the growing threats from China. Too musky, Kathy Griffin uh, swiped at Elon despite her Twitter reinstatement after an initial ban. The new Twitter files prove blacklists are, in fact, real. Caught red-handed, a disgraced Supreme Court whistleblower has been busted for lying, was once a mainstream media darling. Jumping ship, Democrats appear to have a defection problem despite midterm successes. And in another uh, case of high-flying hypocrisy, a Biden official takes private jets despite calls to curb carbon emissions. But, of course, there's always an exception carved out for oneself. When you're the elite fighting back, Kirk Cameron is taking on public libraries after story hour rejections, saying he's prepared to assert his rights. Destroyed my life. A retired Navy SEAL famous for being transsexual says he is detransitioning and warns Americans to wake up. Los Angeles, a newly elected Democrat mayor, plans a bold first action to combat the deep blue city's homeless crisis. And the Biden administration is spending a million dollars to train drug addicts to distribute rapid COVID tests. What could possibly go wrong? Taking a stand. And these are not former drug addicts. These are current. Anyway, a GOP senator is placing holds on the Department of Defense nominees over irresponsible abortion policies. And on the Thought Police, a tech guru says Twitter's uh, uh, shadow banning is one step from Orwellian. Not a good look. Hillary and Chelsea Clinton are taking heat over their carpool karaoke appearances. And Mark Levin says liberalism is designed to destroy the nuclear family. Earnings shock. Americans are in favor are in rather for a big surprise over a new IRS rule for payment apps like Venmo and humanitarian catastrophe. Turkey's potential invasion of Syria would be motivated by politics, an expert says. Rife with inconsistencies, an expert rips Prince Harry and uh, Meghan's uh, new uh, Netflix documentary. Highly addictive, a stronger and more dangerous version of methamphetamine and fentanyl are helping drive America's homeless crisis with users quickly slipping into debilitating addiction and mental illness that makes it impossible for them to function in society. A biased blackout, liberal networks largely ignored Elon Musk's Twitter files story.
Insufficiently prepared, new details emerge about an American college student missing abroad. Manufactured outrage, David Petraeus slams Congress for ending the military vaccine mandate. And must be done, Twitter users are thrilled with Elon Musk for getting more political for the future of civilization, as he says. A former CNN producer has pled guilty to child's sex crime, and New York Times gets hammered for using shotgun shells to denigrate AR-15s. Even the sight of them was too much. Fiscal demands, an opinion, senators are calling for action against the Pelosi-Schumer spending bill as the clock ticks. Learning at home, a mom touts amazing results after pulling kids from a woke public school. Returning Victor Bout to Russia will result in more death. Senator Tom Cotton predicted on Thursday that leftist President Joe Biden's decision to trade imprisoned basketball star player Brittany Griner for notorious Russian arms dealer Victor Bout, known as the merchant of death, would result in people dying as rogue states interrupted Um, interpreted the move as open season to arrest Americans. Um, About uh, Robbie Gamer says that Bout, who was swapped for Griner uh, with uh, Russia, was convicted in 2011 of conspiring to sell millions of dollars worth of weapons to the FARC, a U.S. designated terrorist group in Colombia to be used to kill Americans, according to the Justice Department. Hmm. One uh, lawmaker defended the the, uh, move, suggesting that, well, no Americans had actually been killed, but the threat um, of them being killed is, of course, now in place. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I have to take a quick break, but we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a detransitioned Navy SEAL is fighting for children. Now, detransition means that he was a transgender and reversed that decision. Well, the transgender phenomenon, specifically the the rapid onset variety, isn't particularly new, though it seems to be a constant in the news these days. Ten years ago, a U.S. Navy SEAL shocked the country by declaring that he was transgender. His name is Chris Beck, and in 2013, he made public his declaration that he was a woman whose name was Kristen. He has since detransitioned and is vehemently speaking out and trying to to warn Americans in general and parents in particular that everything that happened to me uh, for the last 10 years destroyed my life. That's a direct quote. He further noted, I destroyed my life. I am not a victim. I did this to myself, but I had help, end quote. Well, he is a highly decorated and seasoned SEAL, bitterly recalled his experience with psychologists who are quick to put him on hormones and affirm his identity instead of doing their job and actually helping him address and work through traumatic experiences in his life. He recounted, and I'm quoting, I walked into a psychologist's office and in one day I have a letter in my hand saying I was transgender. I was authorized for hormones. I was authorized all this other stuff. He also um, apologized to the American public, confessing that the VA, uh, read taxpayers, paid for much of this transition, much of the treatment that he received. Sadly, this tale of malpractice by ideologically motivated health care providers is not uncommon. Uh, Several detransitioners have testified that they experienced the same thing. They were dealing with trauma and needed talk therapy, uh, which is, by the way, banned in some areas with uh, organizations that help Uh, with those who are confused and want to uh, turn from their same-sex attraction, for example. Uh, They were dealing with trauma and needed talk therapy. Instead, they were unconditionally affirmed and given harmful drugs. 
Well, the cycle of affirmation without addressing the real issues that these people are struggling with is the underlying pathology leading to higher risk of suicide for uh, this cohort. Well, these days, it's all too easy for people who are struggling with gender confusion to gain access to hormones. Many places, like Planned Parenthood, don't even require a note from a mental health care provider before handing out these puberty-blocking drugs. Now, this is particularly disturbing when you consider how many minors are getting access to these drugs uh, that have um, irreparable consequences to the developing body. Many puberty blockers have serious side effects like osteoporosis, brain damage, uh, voice changes, heart problems, and or infertility. Some users have even developed cancers, yet pharmaceuticals and gender clinics, uh, they keep peddling these poisons along with their uh, life-destroying ideology. Well, as has been pointed out by many fighting to bring attention to the dangers of this ideology, only one needs to follow the money to understand the strongest motive for the ideological push. Places like Vanderbilt University Medical Center opened a pediatric gender clinic because, as one doctor said, and I'm quoting, it could make a lot of money, end quote. This industry is expected to reach $5 billion by the end of the decade, reports the Daily Wire. And according to a recent report from Grandview Research, the sector saw $1.9 billion valuation last year and is forecast to expand at the compound annual growth rate of more than 11 percent through 2030. Well, the former Navy, Navy SEAL retired, Beck, is also disturbed by the uh, monetary motive, saying, and I'm quoting, this is a billion-dollar industry between psychologists, between surgeries, between hormones, between chemicals, between follow-up treatments, There are thousands of gender clinics popping up all over the country, and each of these gender clinics is going to be pulling in probably over $50 million, end quote. Well, Beck is pleading with the American people to wake up to this uh, grift before they're destroying themselves or their children. England and other European countries are taking serious steps to protect minors from the dangerous, endless merry-go-round of gender transition. Will America get the message before it's too late? Well, the truth is it's not altogether clear uh, that we will in this country. And I'm looking for a uh, another story I, w- I plan to address today, if I can find it, having to do with the American Girl doll and how they are uh, pushing for gender transition. Let me see if I can find this, because I think it's in, uh, it's very relevant to um, to what I've just read. I was going to get to it later in the program. Let me see if I can find it, because um, it certainly does relate. And it appears that I cannot. Nope, I'm not going to be able to find it. Look one more place. Here we go. American Girl. Uh, you are familiar with the American Girl dolls. They're these wonderful dolls that every little girl wants. Uh, but the American Girl book author relied on doctors, or particularly a doctor, who pushed bu- puberty blockers and breast binding to Uh, Readers, an American girl book advocating for the use of experimental puberty blocker drugs to give girls more time to think about their gender identity appears to have relied on the expertise of a doctor who has advocated for the use of breast binding and genital tucking, as he put it. As first reported by the Christian Post, the book titled A Smart Girl's Guide, Body Image, advises children can talk with their doctors about medicine to delay puberty without stating the risks associated with the drug, nor the fact that the U.S. government hasn't approved puberty-blocking drugs for that purpose. Well, the book, available in stores and online, also advises children to talk with a doctor, not parents, about wearing clothes or using pronouns to resemble the opposite sex. 
If you haven't gone through puberty yet, the doctor might offer medicine to delay your body changes, giving you more time to think about your gender identity, the book states. Join our new online community of um, of uh, youngsters in the same uh, category. Well, they go on. Parts of your body may make you feel uncomfortable and you may want to change the way you look. That's totally OK. End quote. One excerpt of the book reads, you can appreciate your body for everything it allows you to experience and still want to change certain things about it. End quote. Well, the book appears to be uh, to direct girls who question their gender to organizations that will help them transition if the adults in their lives do not support the decision. In other words, uh, if your parents say no, you can go around them to these organizations. In an op-ed published by um, the Christian Post, Anne Young, an American mother of two young daughters, contends that the book casts doubt on a child's ability to trust the adults in their lives and tells girls, if you don't have an adult you trust, there are organizations across the country that can help you. In other words, if you have an adult that disagrees with you, who believes you're too immature to understand the full implications of what you might be going through, who has your best interests at heart, who are responsible for uh, for you under law and under uh, God's law, uh, then there are organizations that can help uh, contradict what those adults, those parents um, have in mind for you. Responding to criticism of the book from parents following Young's op-ed, American Girl offered a defense in a statement that provided to USA Today saying the book was developed in partnership with the medical and adolescent care professionals, plural. Additionally, American Girl states the book consistently emphasizes the importance of having conversations and discussing any feelings with parents or trusted adults, end quote. Well, in a follow-up op-ed published by the Christian Post on Tuesday, Young noted the book's author, Mel Hammond, recognized Dr. Carly Gus on her website as the person who helped bring the book to life. Gus is an adolescent medicine specialist at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. In a November 1st article published in the JAMA Pediatrics Medical Journal, Gus advocated for puberty blockers for gender dysphoric children, stating that the drug is, uh, uh, in some cases, eliminate the need for subsequent uh, surgery. Gus contends that the use of uh, gonadotropin-releasing hormone delays the development of irreversible puberty pubertal, as they would call it, uh, changes, and in some cases eliminated the need for subsequent surgery. However, the use of puberty blockers to delay puberty and gender dysphoria children has not been approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. And although advocates claim that puberty blocking drugs are completely reversible, the American College of Pediatricians has warned that temporary use of puberty blocking drugs has been associated with and may be the cause of many serious and permanent side effects including osteoporosis, mood disorders, seizures, cognitive impairment, and when combined with cross-sex hormones, sterility. Well, in July, the FDA warned that gonadotropin-releasing hormone drugs can cause brain swelling and vision loss in children who take them, citing six cases of children between the ages of 5 and 12 who exhibited a plausible association between the uh, drug use and the pseudotumor Cerebri, which I'm not sure I fully understand. Well, Gus also promoted using breast binders and genital tucking in the adolescent clinic guidelines. She authored at uh, Finway Health. Chest binding is the process of flattening out a woman's breast so the chest looks more masculine. According to WebMD, which isn't perhaps the most reliable source, risks of breast binding can include breathing difficulties, breast tissue damage, and can potentially lead to cracked ribs. 
Uh, they think the uh, that partnering with medical and adolescent care professionals should make parents unquestionably trust their advice, Young wrote. As soon as I read about some of the research Gus was involved in and more um, uh, concerning some of the some of her puberty uh, commentary, the way Hammond phrased and advocated experimental hormone blockers started to make sense. Reading Gus's work, the deceitful language became more clear. And we need to take a break. When we come back, we'll uh, finish taking a look at this uh, particular book that you may want to avoid presenting to the young women in your uh, your family, the young girls, uh, believing that the American girl is a wholesome and trusted source for children's reading. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the uh, final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I was uh, referencing an article in the Christian Post about an American girl book advocating for the use of experimental puberty blocking drugs to give girls more time to think about their gender identity And it appears to have relied on the expertise of one doctor. One mother who followed up on this discovered that this doctor was not particularly reliable and did not make any reference to warnings against the use of uh, breast binding and these kind of puberty uh, blocking drugs. She writes that as soon as I read about some of the research Gus, the doctor, is involved in and more damningly, some of her uh, puberty uh, or rather public comments, the way Hammond phrased and advocated experimental hormone blockers started to make sense. Reading Gus's work, the deceitful language became more clear. The word medicine sounds values neutral, whereas puberty blockers increasingly strikes people as strange and even dangerous amid greater awareness of the dangers of these drugs, which have been used to chemically castrate sex offenders, Young went on to write. Concurrent with this, uh, Young goes on, growing public awareness in the U.S., nations like Sweden, Finland, and the United Kingdom are moving away from this treatment protocol for gender dysphoria. Even the New York Times has started asking questions about the costs of blockers. Penny Nance, CEO and president of the um, uh, the conservative group Concerned Women for America condemned the American Girl book in a statement sent to Christian Post on Thursday. What happened to teaching girls that they are beautiful just the way they are, she asked, advocating that young girls consider altering their bodies through puberty blockers or surgery exploits vulnerable and impressionable children. In the same way that it would be dangerous to tell a young underweight girl struggling with her with an eating disorder to consider gastric bypass surgery, why are we encouraging a young girl struggling with her female identity to mutilate her body? End quote. Well, Nance said parents have long trusted doll companies to send positive messages to their daughters, but now those days are gone. Parents need to stop buying goods from woke corporations pushing this dangerous and manipulative agenda on their children. American Girl did not immediately respond to the Christian Post's request for comment, but many individuals who underwent gender transition, I made reference to one in the earlier uh, segment, but now regret that decision, are speaking out, saying they weren't adequately warned about the dangers of taking puberty-blocking drugs, cross-sex hormones, or undergoing genital surgeries to alter their bodies. Seven-year-old Chloe Cole, a California resident who detransitioned Uh, stated that she did not comprehend the effect that the drug and surgeries would have on her body. I I said seven. I think 17 was uh, correct. I really didn't understand all of the ramifications of any of the medical decisions that I was making, Cole said at a public hearing in Florida this July. At 13, Cole started taking hormone blockers, then testosterone, a male body hormone. By 15, the teenager underwent a double mastectomy to remove her breasts. 
I was unknowingly physically cutting off my true self from my body, irreversibly and painfully, she said. I don't know if I'll uh, be able to fully carry a child, and I might be at increased risk for certain cancers, mainly cervical cancer. And because I do not have my breasts, I am not able to breastfeed whatever future child I might have, end quote. Another detransitioner, Helena Kirshner, uh, started identifying as a boy at 15 while struggling with an eating disorder. In a documentary that premiered in September on Fox Nation titled Transgressive, The Cult of Confusion, uh, Kirchner said she felt encouraged to transition through the social media website Tumblr. Years later, however, she regretted the decision and she stopped identifying as a boy, stating that she had a big realization moment where I just realized how much I just regretted the whole thing and I was wrong and that I'm not trans, <clears throat> end quote. And it was like the cloud just lifted and I immediately became a normal person again. I immediately became myself again, she added. Well, late uh, last year, rather, the Christian conservative group One Million Moms launched a boycott against American Girl over an LGBT storyline tied to a 2021 Girl of the Year doll. The doll has an accompanying book, Kira Down Under. In the book, Kira visits an animal sanctuary operated by her great aunts in a same-sex marriage, and it goes on from there. So between the Navy SEAL who has detransitioned and others who have done the same, they are warning those who are in the process of or considering uh, similar procedures that they say uh, were inappropriate for them and they had no idea because they were not told and some were too immature to understand the full implications of the decisions they were making about their bodies and what they were uh, doing to them. Well, in other news, every American bears the cost of unchecked crime. Money, after all, doesn't grow on trees. Walmart CEO Doug McMillian, he recently warned that the big box retailer is seriously considering closing several of its stores in high crime locations. Theft is an issue, McMillian said. It's um, higher than what it has historically been. We've got safety measures, security measures that we put in place by store location. He further noted that having a well-staffed local law enforcement is key to maintaining the security necessary for his stores to operate safely. I think local law enforcement being staffed and being a good partner is part of that equation. And that's normally how we approach it, McMillian said. Uh, If that's not corrected over time, prices will be higher and our stores will close. Well, over the last two plus years, um, since um, across the country, the uh, police officers have um, or police stations have been shut down, spiking crime in longtime uh, urban areas like San Francisco and New York Uh, New York City has increasingly led to retailers taking action to protect um, uh, their wares with some stores like Walgreens closing down shops completely in these uh, troubled areas. Many others hiring at some significant cost security. Much of the rising crime can be laid at the feet of uh, those on the left whose soft on crime policies have effectively decriminalized crimes like shoplifting. In the Bay Area of California, city ordinances have essentially eliminated prosecution for thefts of less than $1,000 thanks to the downgrading of the crime to a mere misdemeanor. Well, this ordinance has resulted in roving smash and grab gangs and stores are left helpless to stop the rampant theft and destruction of their property. We've seen video after video of just that. Well, the Target retail chain has observed the same crime-based losses. The CFO, Michael Fidelik, he noted that so far this year, the franchise has recorded over $400 million in losses, which is expected to top out at $600 million. 
Target CEO Brian McCornell. He added that he had seen a significant increase in theft and organized retail crime across our business. Well, the growth of organized shoplifting crime following the implement, uh, implementation of the soft on crime policies is as predictable as night following day. The spiking crime proves that former Governor Rudy Giuliani, um, his uh, broken window policy was, in fact, correct. Letting criminals get away with minor infractions only serves to produce more significant and more violent crime. Well, the long history of ignoring or downright rejecting the sinful and fallen condition of humanity has its results. Some love to blame crime not on those uh, individuals perpetrating it, but on social writ large. Uh, by blaming society and seeking to hold it to account by imposing various ill-conceived laws, they've effectively bred crime. Ergo, Americans are now forced to suffer through the ill-conceived do-gooder laws that reward crime while at the same time shaming the law-abiding uh, for demanding that criminals be held accountable. Furthermore, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> as crime rises, especially in lower-income neighborhoods, it makes the poor poorer and businesses flee to safer law-abiding areas. Of course, uh, those who are woke love to blame this flight from crime on law-abiding citizens as well as if their decision to move their families away from dangerous neighborhoods was the primary cause of poverty. Well, good policing and consistent enforcement of all laws like Giuliani's broken window policies is the, uh, is the only thing that will serve to combat rising crime places like uh, New York and San Francisco. And the only question is, how long will it take to face this reality? Too long, I think, is probably the answer because it's already gone on long enough. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We are out of time. I do want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering today's program, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.